0: It is Drive Live, 4001 is the phone number. If you have the app on your smartphone, which is available for iOS or Android, you can text through for free. Absolutely no money. We have an hour of legal questions just under Legal Hour on Drive Live. And Ludmilla Yamalava is here with us. It is, of course, a delight to see you. Thank you for coming back. Great to be here. Thank uh, you for having me. The implication there was that you weren't going to come back, and I didn't mean it to sound like that. You, we
1: are just having know, one of it's those b- days.
2: Wistful thinking, but yeah. here I am.
0: Oh well. So questions through. We've got a number of questions in. I wanted to bring up one topic first of all because this is, uh, I guess, on lots of people's minds. You've recently sought clarification from the Dubai Health Authority on requirements and guidelines for health insurance. Policies. One question you sought clarity on was whether an employee could benefit from the health insurance of his or her spouse instead of having a separate insurance provided by his or her employer. What was the response to that?
2: Correct. So as a, as a preface to this particular question, a query, it relates to the, uh, the, to the recent Dubai health insurance law, which um, made it mandatory for all companies to provide health insurance to all their employees. We've had a number of cases recently where an employee uh, that is about to be hired by a company comes in and asks if they could remain on the health insurance, for example, of their spouse. And this could be because their spouse is working for perhaps a bigger company that can offer a, a much more generous, if you will, health insurance plan for both the, that particular employee and for the entire family so that spouse at that point in time is already covered by the health insurance and so they would like to remain uh, on that same insurance and uh, logically speaking they assume that that's possible because that health insurance plan is actually based in the UAE which is one of the requirements for the health insurance um, in Dubai uh, and, uh, and 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 they are already covered by it however uh, the, uh, the Dubai Health Insurance Authority has clearly stated that it's the obligation of the employer or the sponsor to provide the insurance to the person that they sponsor. In this case, even if you have insurance uh, from your spouse, your employer is obligated to provide you a separate health insurance, which will become as a prerequisite uh, towards your employment agreement and ultimately your residence visa. Uh, So in other words, let's say this in particular applies for spouses or husbands, for example, who um, have been covered by their wife's health insurance and now they're coming on to their own employment contract and so in that case they need to have their own employment visa from the company and because in that case the company becomes a sponsor uh, of that employee it is the obligation of the company to provide health insurance to the employee now there is not an obligation for the company to for example match that health insurance to the one that the employer, uh, the employee might have had from his or her spouse, uh, but there's certainly an obligation that that insurance becomes the primary insurance. Um, so, number one, you cannot remain on the insurance of your spouse; you have to have an insurance that's provided by your uh, by your sponsor, that is the company. Number two, however, it is possible to have two insurance plans, mm-hmm. so you're not; it's they're not mutually exclusive. So, it's not to say that you are you now have to forego the other insurance and on only have the insurance that your employer provides. You can have uh, two insurance p- uh, plans. In fact, they could even be provided by the same insurance company. In terms of coverage and compensation, obviously, you cannot claim for the same benefit uh, twice, but certainly you can claim for the remainder or the shortfall that was not covered, but for example, by one policy. You can c- have it covered by the other policy.
1: So say, for example, you had two policies in the family, the husband has a great one, the wife has a great one, you maybe need something so straightforward as physiotherapy, and you're entitled to six on one policy and six on the other, would you be able to have 12? Is that okay? Or is that something that you would need to check out?
2: And that's a perfect example. So in that case, yes, you would be able to benefit from both, as long as you're not, for example, claiming for the same six uh, sessions twice from both policies.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. I've got my insurance policy from my sponsor. My wife works for somebody else. She's got insurance from her sponsor, but has given that up. Does she now have to go back onto her uh, policy? Does she have to revisit that with her employer?
2: Correct, yes. So, it's, okay. so it's, it's the obligation of the sponsor to provide insurance. So whoever the sponsor is at that point in time, so let's say if she stops working and she comes under your sponsorship, mm-hmm. then you become the sponsor, and then you have the obligation to provide that insurance to her. But if she goes back and, and works on her uh, on her own contract with somebody else, then it becomes the obligation of that sponsor at that point in time to provide a primary insurance, though she may continue to benefit from yours.
0: Okay, so we've got questions, uh, one particular question. Quite a long question that we'll come to in a few minutes time in by email today which came to drive live at dubai i1038.ae we have a new DIFC online will to look at lots of questions coming in here for Ludmilia Oliver. she's here for uh, just under an hour more until 6 o'clock on the legal hour this is drive live
2: on dubai i One Hundred Three Point Eight.
0: Drive Live, The Legal Hour. Ludmilla Yamalaba is here this afternoon. Questions for 001 of uh, the free app? Legal Hour on Drive Live. Now, let's get to a question that came in by email. Uh, this is from, I think it was Abat A. I think that's the right uh, name. Ludmilla, this is for you. It's quite long. Uh, I'll run through this as briefly as I can. I'm the owner of a small business. I've been using a typing service. for All my staff visa needs, starting up from medical up to immigration, stickers on passports, etc. They guide us step by step. They do the whole thing for us in all government processes in relation to staff visas. We pay all the fees, plus service charges in cash to them. They do all the rest. We give them the passports, all required. Now... That's been fine for a while. A problem has popped up in relation to one staff's visa renewal. We're asked to pay a fine of over 9,000 dirhams by the Labour Office for not renewing the Labour card, the fee for which is 150 uh, dirhams. Now, the particular renewal was done about 18 months ago, causing the accumulation of the fine. We entirely depend on the professional service of this centre. It appears that maybe a member of staff who handled our account at the typing centre, forgot to do the labour card renewal. That obviously triggered a penalty. Now, two questions here. One, do I have to uh, turn to legal recourse to recover the penalty from the typing service that failed us? And also, until this moment, when we get the immigration sticker on the passport for new or old stuff, we feel everything has been completed. My understanding is that government services are organised in such a way that you can't complete one process without completing the process that should precede it. So, V sticker you need the medical stiffener etc you get uh, the picture there is it a system failure uh, on the part of the labor office which allows you to proceed without paying for the labor card if so why am i being penalized is ultimately question two uh, is that clear enough am i ever is that reasonable hey,
2: let me let me for the benefit of the listeners paraphrase it in a, in a little shorter format So the first question, what's the recourse against the typing service for having failed to renew the labor card timely? Mm. Much depends on two things. One, the contract between the parties, between you and the typing center. And two, the activity of this so-called typing center. Because uh, by very definition, by the very term typing center, uh, it obviously it shows the activity of that center and that it's the typing center. So if you're being very, very technical and very, uh, um, very logical, it's typing center. The, the, the authority and the responsibility of the typing center is to do what to type, right? So if we're being very sort of very technical in that sense, well, And therefore, if it's just a typing center, then you can see how the obligation of the typing center to actually renew uh, documents and and submit documents timely may not actually be related to their core activity, which is the typing center.
0: So if they're not engaged as a PRO specifically you mean
2: for example okay. so let me just let me kind of take it back to this. So the first part I said is the contract what's in the contract so in the contract is does that clearly state what the obligation of that typing center so-called typing center uh, what what's included in the obligations is it uh, submitting the documents picking up the documents uh, doing them on what time frame uh, what in what and also what are the penalties or sanctions for breaching any of those obligations and from experience, it's I would I would speculate that it's very it's highly unlikely there is a contract that clearly sets out what the obligations of, the, of that so-called typing center would be, uh, with regards to their clients. And that's just from experience. Uh, so therefore, if there's nothing in the contract that clearly sets out what those obligations would be, it would be very difficult to proceed with a, a legal course of action against the typing center for having violated or breached something, if they have not, if it's not clearly stated in the contract. So that's number one. Mm. Number two, it may be that even if you have a contract and it says clearly this is what they're supposed to do, if their activity, if on the license, their activity is listed only as a typing center, you can see how that would be difficult. It would be difficult to enforce a contract like that against the company who is only licensed to provide so-called typing uh, typing services. Therefore, in that case, really the liability sticks with the client who decided to hire the typing center to do something, in addition other than just typing so you can see how you can bring a case to the court even if you have a clear agreement that sets out exactly what the typing center would do where they would challenge and the court also would agree that it's not really within their scope of activities or services uh, to provide anything other than typing so the the Advice here, and the bottom line is that you just you need to be very careful who you hire to provide services and, and make, clear, make very clear in writing what you expect the services to be, number one. And number two, also, what the penalty for violating or breaching any of those services would be. So in this case, in the event you fail to submit certain documents by whatever date and there are penalties that are accrued to the client, who will be responsible for that? So it's very, also, it's very important to address that very issue in the contract itself so that's the first part of I guess that's a lesson so one lesson the other lesson just make sure that whoever it is that you hire to perform services for your actual license to do so we often see here companies hiring third uh, third-party service providers who actually do not at least on as per their license do not technically speaking have the authority or have the license to provide the services for which they are being engaged and therefore in the event of a breach it would be very difficult to pursue them in court
0: Is it worth going to the Labor Department and saying, look, this slipped through the cracks, as it were, Uh, what can we do about this?
2: And, and that kind of brings us to the second question. It's always worth it to approach the authorities or whoever to try to challenge and see if there will be any kind of a concession that will be, or, or a discount that you that, um, could be negotiated. It's always worth doing it, but you need to manage your expectations. Anything to do with government is a lot more strict and for, uh, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so the, and as the saying goes, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And it's so it should not be the, um, the excuse that you did not know that the certain documents were not renewed timely uh so is it worth attempting absolutely um, is it is it reasonable to expect that you can actually agree on anything other than the full p- uh, penalty uh, not as likely uh, but with regards to the other part of that question and that is you know, should if, if this is the responsibility of the the authority itself because they renewed something without having actually had all the documents in place and therefore should they keep should they penalize the company uh, in this case from what from the, the, f- the formulation of the question, it seems that the la- labor card actually is renewed after the, the, the visa is renewed. So in that case, the sequence of events seems to have actually followed the natural process, which is you first renew the, weas- the visa, and afterwards you apply for the renewal of the labor card. So here it sounds like the authorities have done actually everything that they were supposed to do. It's just that then the service provider, be it the typing center or the, the company itself, should have then renewed the um, uh, the labor card and should have actually caught on to the fact that the labor card was not renewed timely. So in this case it is highly unlikely that the authorities will are actually to blame to begin with and certainly that they will offer you any kind of a discount. It's okay. you know the responsibility sticks with you for making sure that your you all of your documents are always in order. That
0: was a question from a bat a little bit earlier on by email, drive live at Dubai 1038.AE Appreciate you uh, getting in touch with us.
1: The text line has been really, really busy today. We had Amir who texted in um, one minute past five, so very keen. This question um, is, what do you do about noisy neighbours? Can you report them to the police? And this is a familiar story. You might be, you know, giggling, but it is actually quite serious. If you need to sleep and they're having parties or staying up late, what do you do about it?
2: Yes, yeah, so two two authorities, if you will, that you can report it to. One being the municipality. So, if it's, in particular, if if the noise comes from an establishment uh, that's in the neighbor in the neighborhood, so for example, a restaurant or a club, and there is uh, there is regular no- noise to the point it's become a nuisance, you can report that to uh, to the municipality. And in the case of a neighbor, for example, then you can report that to the police. But you need to be mindful that the police obviously has much more important things to, to, to take care of. So sometimes they may not jump on your on your complaint as quickly as, as you would wish for. But certainly that would be the right um, resource to, to tap into first.
0: OK, let's talk about parts question came in just after that one notice period of 90 days. Is that legal? Is that standard? Is that normal in a non free zone or a free zone?
2: Okay. With regards to the notice, and this relates to employment relationships, there is a statutory uh, mand or a mandatory n- uh, minimum notice of one month. So, whether your contract provides for notice or not, there will always be at least a one month notice, unless you've been terminated for cause or under Article 120. Now, companies do have the ability to put in whatever other notice, maximum notice. So remember, we're talking about the minimum no- notice. The minimum notice is always one month. The maximum notice, the law does not provide for what that maximum notice should be or, or what the average notice should be. So it's really up to the company to set a notice period. The courts obviously will pare down a notice that is too is too broad or is too long. A three-month notice, which is a 90-day notice, is very is common. And in particular for certain positions if it's a senior position there's almost an expectation that there will be a three months notice a managerial position in fact some of the employment agreements and some of the free zones have it as a default provision for any managerial positions there is a three months notice on the assumption that obviously when you when you are seeking to replace a more senior member of the staff you do need a longer period of time to find the right candidate to replace them so therefore the three months notice is reasonable we've also seen six months notices they too have in the past been upheld and and, and used to be quite common. They're much less common now because obviously it costs company a lot of money to um, to have somebody on a six-month no- month notice, especially if they terminate the employee. But a three-month notice is absolutely, um, is absolutely reasonable and it is legal.
0: Okay, that's a question for part. Hopefully that answered that question. We've got loads to get to. 4001 is the standard text number. You can text via the free app. We're going to come back to some of those questions just after a quick break. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye. 103.8. One hundred three point eight. Ludmilla Miller Yamalavir is here for the Legal Hour this afternoon on Drive Live. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Now we're going to be talking about the new DIFC online wills. Uh, before we get to the end of the program, we've been talking health insurance. Questions in by email. Questions in by text. Natalie Lindo Taylor is here. Straight to you, Natalie. More text questions.
1: Yeah, we've had quite a few on property, so we might try and get through a few quite quickly here if we can. We've had one from Zishan that says, "What happens when you don't provide notice for at least one?" months so that would be someone moving out of a tenancy
2: I'm not sure if that relates to a property dispute or employment I think because property usually you need a notice of, of 90 days so I'm assuming since uh, Jishan's question question came in shortly after our, our previous employment question I'm, I'm assuming unless you want to correct us uh, so with regards to not giving a notice of one month, then you, as an employee, if you do not give company a one month notice, then you have to compensate the company for that one month notice. If the company does not give you one month notice, then it needs to compensate you or to pay you out the one month notice.
1: Okay, so Alex has texted in and um, Alex is having issues with um, moving out. They say, I've given 51 days notice instead of the required 60. The company that run the compound are saying that the next two years contract will take effect at the end of this one. So they're asking for a year's rent. They're saying we can have a six month contract, but they've already found somewhere else that they want to sign on to. So they want to know, can we get out at the end of the contract? And they say, okay, could I pay the extra nine days in rent to make up the 60 day notice period? Or is there a small fine?
2: Uh, this will really come down to your negotiation with the landlord and the ultimate damages that the landlord may show uh, for um, in, in connection with you moving out early. Uh, so the law does not provide for any kind of a statutory pen- penalty for breaching a rental agreement early. However, what the, the courts look at it is they will compensate the non-breaching uh, party for, for the damages that they will have suffered as a result of early termination. Obviously, in order to get to that point, one or the other party needs to bring a case to a court, uh, but this is fast forward. If you do not agree with the landlord, this is what you would do, and in that case, the landlord would claim whatever they would claim as compensation, and um, uh, the courts will, irrespective of what isn't what what had previously might have been previously agreed in the uh, in the contract, the courts will pare it down to the actual damages suffered. So, let's say the landlord is claiming six month compensation, uh, then the court will require the landlord to show that they've actually suffered the um, uh, the dam- damages to the extent of six-month compensation and if they are not able to prove that they will only give them damages uh, for for the amount that they're able to substantiate and so this is irrespective of what's in the agreement so therefore ultimately now you know that from the legal standpoint so use that to negotiate with the landlord uh, so in your case it's a really marginal difference between 51 days and 60 days definitely offer the landlord uh, just um, as a sort of a you know as a gesture of goodwill to compensate in the extra uh, nine days but be prepared they may not be willing to accept it not because uh, they are in a shortfall sounds like they've found another renter but just because they expect something else Uh, but remember legally speaking they have very limited um, recourse in terms of asking you for much more than what they've suffered in terms of damages and since already have a, a, a tenant that's ready to take over the property then it's not likely they'll be able to succeed and it's also not likely they will actually pursue this in court so th- my recommendation is just try to agree amicably and um, and but be prepared usually in these kinds of cases when there is no amicable ag- uh, settlement then landlords usually keep the deposit back and uh, that's sort of their leverage uh, to cover themselves for for early termination if it's a substantial deposit then it, it could be you who can bring the case to, uh, to the rent dispute committee and seek reimbursement of the deposit. Otherwise, just remember that the landlord has that deposit uh, which they can use to cover any kind of shortfall that they may feel they have suffered as a result of your early termination
0: okay let's go to another text in here. No name on this one. What about long leave? company sending a colleague of mine for a really long leave about six months that's a pretty decent bit of time off. but is there a law saying he might not be paid even though he's employed by this company He's been sent away for a while
2: Well, the law is is structured as as follows: so you only get paid for you only should expect compensation for the services you provide. So, I mean, that's what the salary is—the you know, the point—the pr- po- the point of the salary, and that is, you need to provide services in order to be compensated. However, uh, if you are being forced to leave. Uh, and it's not really by your choice, and you, as an employee, can actually ask to be compensated for those six months because it's not really done by choice. Uh, so, if you leave uh, voluntarily, if you accept that long leave voluntarily, uh, then that's that's your right. Uh, but if you, but if this is something a forced leave, so to speak, then you can, under the law, request compensation for those six months. as it's not your, uh, it's not your choice. That is one component of that particular relationship. The other one, let's say, even if it is, uh, if you agree to be sent away on long leave because you're, you understand the company may maybe going through a hard time and you're willing to give them some time, some grace period, until they bring they bring you back. Do remember that those six months will count towards your end of service benefits at the end uh, of your relationship with the company whenever that happens in the future. So it does not pause your term with the company.
0: Also, if you're sponsored by this company and you're out of the country for six months, that... Uh, does it not cancel your visa?
2: Uh, that's a great point, and actually, that relates to one of the other listeners' questions. Uh, y- yes, so if you have a UAE residence visa, you need to come back, come back into the country every 180 days mm. or every six months. Uh, so, if you do not, it will cause complications when you enter uh, enter the UAE, and uh, there will, could be some penalties that you need to pay. So, make sure that you you do come back at least one time before before this, this six months break.
1: Okay, and Rashida's text in and said, we were talking about health insurance a little earlier on and Rashida said, is the sponsor or employer legally obliged to provide health insurance, not just for the employee, but their family, i.e. their spouse and children?
2: Great question. In Abu Dhabi, that is the case. In Abu Abu Dhabi has had a health insurance law for much longer than Dubai and there was a mandatory health insurance law and under that law all companies actually are obligated to provide health insurance not just to the employee but also to the employees dependents in Dubai, that is not the case. Uh, the company is not obligated to provide insurance to all the, all the, the dependents of the employee, uh, but obviously they can do so by, um, if, if they, should, should they want to do so. And in many cases, uh, a lot of companies offer that as a benefit to their employees, but it is not in the law.
0: It's coming up to quarter to six. If you have a question for Ludmilla Yamalov, you can text it through on 4001 or via the free app. You can call if you like. Esther is smiling by the phones. 423 1010 is the number. Here's a question for you from Alan. Uh, Ludmilla, if a court finds uh, a case against a wealthy businessman, um, can this businessman hide their wealth so that they effectively could say, look, I got no cash, I can't pay? Uh, What happens?
2: In practical terms, yes, because wealth. It has You have to have connections to show that that particular person actually has that wealth. And you Now, how do you show the connection? You may know somebody owns all the properties and um, the companies and whatever other assets. You may believe that belongs to a particular person. But if legally speaking, there are no links... It's, it's almost impossible to um, to, to seize those um, assets uh, to cover the judgment, for example, that you're trying to pursue, because legally speaking, the court only has the authority to freeze assets, to seize assets that it can reach legally. Now, what does that mean? If uh, the person has bank accounts, uh, then absolutely the court has the authority and in fact enforcement proceedings can do so very swiftly and very effectively to seize, to freeze those bank accounts and have actually the funds from the bank be transferred to the court happens quite regularly in enforcement proceedings similarly if um, the particular businessman has or the person has um, real estate assets registered to his or her name uh, same way the court in enforcement proceedings can reach out to the land department and ask for those assets to be frozen uh, and uh, and then auction them off to settle the judgment but if there are no other links then that's that's basically that's it's it's almost impossible uh, to, to, to reach those assets if they're not registered the person's name so you have to be very careful if you do actually contract with any company or person make sure that you understand who you're contracting with and that that party, be it a co- corporate or individual, actually has assets to be able to uh, to secure you know, whatever judgment you may later uh, uh, pursue.
0: And that's even if those assets are plainly visible. I don't know they're a business owner or a building owner. You don't know if they're registered in Absolutely. that person's and name. And or? I will
2: tell you, there are actually a number of cases in the UAE, for example, where investors have judgments against mm. a particular company. Uh, and, and everyone knows, not everyone, this is obviously a gross generalization, but the general understanding is that that company actually has assets and is quite well off. However, legally speaking, there is nothing on record that clearly links those assets that are perceived to be uh, to belong to that company or to that party. Uh, there's nothing in uh, in legally in the nothing in the record that actually links those assets to the company. And therefore, there are we know firsthand many uh, many people who have court judgments and against parties who who are around and and functioning, uh, but legally speaking uh, are not um, almost insolvent, have very little assets to their name.
0: Okay, Yamalov is here from me and Pleska. Last ten minutes of questions. We've got a lot to get through but get in touch with us now on 4001 or via the free app if you have a particular burning legal we want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. It's coming up 10 to 6, last 10 minutes of the legal hour today. We have our guest in Ludmilla Yamalova with us uh, in the room. Now, Fitzpatrick's text in. just a little while ago, I have a question, slightly off topic. Actually, it's going to be on topic because it's something we wanted to talk about. But it needs clarity, says Fitzpatrick. If a married couple has a joint bank account, the husband dies. Will the joint account be frozen by law? Question one second question will the wife not have rights uh, of access to the account a uh,
2: very good question very relevant question so there are two aspects there is one by law and one by practice by law yes the account should be frozen because it's a joint account so the que- the uh, the objective there of, uh, for the for the authorities to freeze the account in order to protect uh, the beneficiaries of the, or the heirs of the 50% of that account whoever they may be so now whoever they may be and that is where this is a decision that usually takes time and this is why courts do normally authorities do normally freeze the account in order to figure out who those heirs or beneficiaries of that 50% of the account would be and remember it only 50% of the account so because there is often this assumption that all of that money then is, is frozen and and the wife also will share her uh, will lose her share that is not true So it's only the 50% of the husband that's in question, for example, the the, the deceased. So in this case, practically speaking, yes, that account should be frozen until there is some sort of a court judgment that shows who the heirs are. And then then obviously, depending on who the heirs are, uh, the court will issue a decision as to how to disperse those funds. So that's legally speaking. In practical terms, however, in order for... Uh, for the bank to freeze the account, they obviously need to know that that person has died. And the presumption is that as long as the person has a residence visa in the UAE, the authorities may alert the bank that the person has died, especially if the death happened within the UAE. Uh, that's in, that's in practical terms. However, what we have seen in the last uh, in the last many several years, in fact, that banks do not necessarily freeze the accounts unless they either have a court order. Or one or the other, somebody reports somebody, meaning a a person from the family reports to the bank that that person has died. So having a court order takes a lot longer. So it's so often... The banks will continue to keep the account active until they actually have a court order unless a family member reports otherwise. So in other words, we have seen in the past several years that it's not really it hasn't really been it hasn't been the authority or let's say the immigration authority or the police uh, alarming or or notifying the banks, but rather either the court or the family member. So in legal terms, yes, the account should be frozen. In practical terms, it doesn't usually happen unless there's an interested party that notifies the bank.
0: Okay, let's go to line 2. Hassan's on line 2. Um Hassan, you got a question for Ludmilla, a Visa for an expectant wife. This is your wife? Yes, uh she's my wife, yes. Oh, well, look, I hope uh, everything's going well. Put your question to yeah. uh, Ludmilla.
2: Miller. Yeah, uh my question is uh basically uh she's pregnant now and she uh basically we didn't have insurance in the UAE, so obviously she has to go back to Canada uh
1: so that she can
2: deliver a the baby there. Uh, but obviously she went in February, and we are planning. Uh, obviously, we are planning to uh, come back in the UAE in November, or December time, and it's going to be more than six months. Uh, and she's under my sponsored visa, so by by the UAE law, it's going to be cancelled automatically. So, is there any way uh, I can like pay a penalty, or maybe I can provide some documents that she can enter back under my sponsored visa in the residential visa? Sure. So, a number. So, for clarification purposes, the visa will not be automatically cancelled upon the expiration Mm -hmm. of 180 days. That's not the case. Uh, Usually there is just basically there is a block in the system that when upon entering the UAE uh, you will need to address it with the authorities, and usually it's a matter of a, p- a penalty. Uh, so, and, and perhaps filling out a few documents here and there to, to, to kind of unblock the account. But the visa will not be uh, automatically canceled, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, that's right. one. Uh, number two, obviously, if you know um, ahead of time that your wife will not be coming back earlier and you, and you have a, a legitimate excuse – do approach the authorities, and since you are the sponsor, and present that evidence ahead of time, so it is possible that they will note, make a note on the account, though from experience it may not be, um, in practical terms, may not really be reflected when she does come into the country because uh, it may be later used in order to waive a penalty, but not necessarily uh, administratively to keep the block off the account. Uh, but, right. I mean, but the, the more information you can bring to the authorities in advance, you know, the safer you will be. But in terms of just having the visa canceled, don't worry about it. There's one other right. thing that you mentioned earlier, and I know no, you didn't really ask a question about it, but I'm sort of assuming on the basis of your question that your wife left because you worried that uh, the insu- you wouldn't be able to get insurance for her since she had gotten pregnant before you actually had held insurance Correct. for her, that insurance wouldn't cover her. Uh, and that was a, that's actually a very legitimate question because until recently – a lot of insurance companies actually would exclude any kind of so-called pre-existing conditions, So in your wife's case, that would be a pre-existing condition once she go, goes insurance, if she was already pregnant before then. However, yeah. recently, the Dubai Health Authority has changed the rules on that, and now the insurance companies are no longer allowed to exclude pre-existing con- conditions. Um, As I say that, I would put a little caveat, I'm not sure exactly if this pre-existing condition will also apply to the pregnancy, the status of pregnancy, but I, logically speaking, I think it would. Um, So I would, just for whatever it's worth, I would check with your insurance plan because they are not allowed to to exclude any kind of pre-existing condition. So it may be that your wife is covered and she can come back in before the the expiration of the six months.
0: Let's hope so. does, Does that help you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one more thing, like uh, even
2: my, my, basically my, uh, she's she went with with my one-year child. So will that apply to him as well? The same same thing. If I provide the documents. Uh, You mean for the 180 days being outside of the country? Yes. Uh, Same same thing. Uh, Alert the authorities, but be prepared that you may have to pay a a fine. So when they do arrive uh, at the airport, they may not come out as, as quickly as you expect them, but it's only because there's an administrative issue that they need to resolve. Usually what happens, what we have seen happen in the past, is that they would have to keep their passports there and then later check in with the authorities and submit whatever paperwork or pay penalties. and so. But it really is just a technical a technical issue that's nothing to be worried about.
0: Hassan, all the best. Okay, Appreciate you coming on. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Right, let's go back to the text lines. Uh, NLT, you're looking at those?
1: Yeah, we've had quite a few texts and hoping we can get through all of them. Um, we've got one here from Omar. Sorry, I can't see the name on this one. Yeah, we've got one here from Omar, and he said... Is it possible to um, extend the probation period beyond the initial six months? Is that legally a thing that you can do, extend it beyond the six months that you agree at the start? In
2: short, no, it is not possible. The law clearly states that an employee can only be put on probation once. This, um, and once meaning that, legally speaking, the maximum months of probation is six months. So a company can legally put a, uh, an employee on the probation of six months, but it cannot extend that probation for beyond six months. One... Two, even if the company puts an employee in probation of three months, but legally it can actually keep the employee in probation for six months. But once it agreed to a shorter probation period, it cannot extend it even to the six months. So if you've agreed originally to three months, you cannot agree to anything uh, in anything beyond the three months. And and that's so that's that's one comment. The other comment um, that we're actually seeing quite often and, and right now we're dealing with, the same company cannot put the uh, same employee on probation more than once. So this happens, for example, if a company wants to rehire an employee. So we're dealing with a company right now um, that is rehiring an employee after three years of, uh, of separation, so to speak. In that case, once again, the law is pretty clear that that company cannot rehire that employee, even if he or she's coming in on a different title. So whenever they start a new contract, even if it is in a different economic zone, uh, as long as the party remains the same, that employee cannot be put on probation again
0: all right here's a couple of questions just very quickly uh, we have an employee who's set up a competing business can we stop him even though we can't prove a loss
2: in, in practical terms, no.
0: Right.
2: So non-competition uh, agreements are, uh, are sort of still an evolving concept in the UAE. And uh, in order to have an enforceable competition in very short terms, you need to have a, a very clearly defined non-competition agreement to begin with. And it has, clearly, it has to be clearly defined and, and narrowly defined. It has to be reasonable in scope. And that is you have to clearly outline what business you, do not wa- you consider to be competing business and what geographic area and the term of non-competition period. That's one. So in order to even be able to try to enforce a non-competition agreement, you need to have an agreement in place, first of all. But even then, even if you have a clear agreement, you need to show actual damages in order to try to recover because you can file a claim. What are you filing a claim for? You're uh, filing a claim for breach of non-competition because you have suffered some sort of damages. So the court will ask you to prove actual damages.
0: Okay. And breathe. That's all we've got time for today, unfortunately. Lots more questions that we will keep until next week. But if there is a question that you have for Ludmilla, you can email it in to drive live at dubai at 1038ae We're going to keep a couple of questions that have come in in the last 20 minutes or so until next week. Ludmilla Yamalova is from Yamalava and Plethka, our legal expert today. And as ever, good to see you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.